you're all very welcome. The, uh, my name is Shane Mulhall, and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and Grief. And the subtitle is that there is no future in the past. And I'd like to open with this, that there is much said about grief. It is said that it is natural to grieve, and part of the human condition. That it is a product of love, and the more you love, the more you will grieve. And that it is necessary to grieve when you lose a loved one. And that also it is good to grieve. Now, interestingly, we never need to justify our love or our happiness. However, sometimes we do try and justify our anger, and we always try to justify our grief. Now, grief is a negative emotion. And the other negative ones, such as envy, jealousy, apathy, and all of these, these are not justified by us. So why is grief the only negative emotion that we seek to justify? And the fundamental reason is that because it appears to come from love. But in truth, grief needs justification because it is not true. And what is not true always needs justification. The proposition tonight is that grief is not necessary, not obligatory, not natural in the true sense, it is the product of attachment and not pure love. And it's based on misunderstanding, particularly of birth and death, and also the nature of relationship and of life itself. And tonight's talk hopefully will show that life can be lived and loved to the full, that loss can be met, and that no grief need arise. And secondly, for those of us who are grieving now, perhaps it will help to lessen or even dissolve the grief. So we start with looking at, well, what is grief? Grief is a grievance. You have a grievance when you grieve. It is a grievance as to how life has unfolded. It is a resentment against what is, a sort of a feeling of being shortchanged in some sort of way. However, one can love something or somebody and leave it without any grievance. The key is whether there has been full satisfaction or not. And to give a sort of a mundane example which uh, illustrates the principle, if I went to a restaurant and I was hungry and ordered a meal, and just after I had my second mouthful, they took the plate away. Well, then I would feel aggrieved, because I am still hungry, and I've now been deprived. So there's less than full satisfaction. However, take another situation where I sit at the same table, eat to my heart's content, to full satisfaction. Then I will leave the table happily. When there is full satisfaction, one is happy to leave everything behind. When there's not, one holds on. Grief arises when there is an unwillingness 
to accept what is, or to put it in religious terms, to accept God's will. It is ultimately a lack of faith or trust in the love and wisdom of God. It is a plea for my will and not thy will. When our beliefs, our values are shattered, then the shock of this produces grief. I read somewhere recently that grief arises because of an inability to foresee. The gardener who may absolutely love his gardening because he foresees the winter does not grieve when the flowers die. But we tend not to foresee death before it arises. Love is liberating and attachment is binding. With attachment you are bound to the so-called loved one and separation produces the grief inevitably. But pure love is good and it produces happiness and the good only produces good. And thus pure love cannot produce grief. In truth, Grief has no substantiality. When there is no I character, who I ordinarily think I am, as in sleep, there is no grief. Nobody grieves while asleep. You need to be awake to grieve. The I character needs to be present. And grief is so insubstantial that you can displace it very easily, temporarily at least. And again, to tell a story, which I've told before, but a very good friend of mine, his very young daughter, perhaps of four or six months, died after quite a painful four or six months. And my friend at the time was 27. I went to the funeral, and he looked about 77. His skin was a dark grey with the grief that he was suffering. I was invited back to the house, so I went. I was standing beside another friend of mine, and albeit this sounds irreverent, what actually happened is a conversation about rugby arose between myself and the friend. We had played on the same team together. So we were talking about some rugby game. And the grieving father came and joined us, and he said, would you like a drink? And he offered us a drink. And then he participated in the conversation. And he had actually played on the same rugby team as the two of us. So for about 15 or 20 minutes, we told yarns about this rugby team and exaggerated try-scoring feats and all sorts of things. And there was happiness for the three of us. There was no grieving father. For the memory of a rugby team, he had forgotten his daughter. So for 15 minutes, literally, grief lifted off him, and he was a happy ex-rugby player. Now, when the conversation naturally came to an end, he remembered, and the grief descended again, and he went from looking like a 27-year-old to looking like a 77-year-old. What really needs to be appreciated is that grief is not obligatory. The events of life may be unavoidable, but the responses to them are. And there's a Chinese proverb which says, you cannot prevent the birds of sorrow from flying over your head, but you can prevent them from building nests in your head. 
the Shankaracharya, the man that the school went to with its questions, he said this. He said, the laws of the universe bind man in every aspect of his existence, except in one aspect. The individual is free in Bahawana. And Bahawana means an emotional attitude or ground. He goes on to say that he can deliberately create a Bahawana or emotional attitude within himself and work accordingly. Even in miserable conditions, people become happy, or in happy conditions become miserable, because they choose it like that. Viktor Frankl, who was in a concentration camp in the Second World War, this is what he said. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. This is man's free will, to respond as he chooses to circumstances. And it is so important that we appreciate this, that we have this free will, that we have this choice. And it is even more important that we exercise it and exercise it wisely. Now, our greatest grief normally arises with the death of a loved one. It is not the death that causes the grief, in truth, but that we really do not understand life and death. Socrates, when he was facing death during his trial, he said, For the fear of death is indeed the pretense of wisdom, and not real wisdom, being a pretense of knowing the unknown, and no one knows whether death which men in their fear apprehend to be the greatest evil, may not be the greatest good. Is not this ignorance of a disgraceful sort, the ignorance which is the conceit that man knows what he does not know? And in this respect only, I believe myself to differ from men in general, and may perhaps claim to be wiser than they are that whereas I know but little of the world below, I do not suppose that I know. Now, with regard to life and death, there are three fundamental possibilities. And if I could just put up a diagram, a very simple diagram. So, these are the three possibilities. That we are born, and then we die. That we are born begin and continue on forever, that we're infinite. And the third possibility is that we are eternal. If we believe in one, that we begin at birth and cease to be on death, then there will be joy in presence and grief in absence, and it is inevitable. If we truly believe in two, that we are born, 
but that we are infinite. If we believe this in a religious sense, and we truly love, there will be no grief on the death of the beloved. As Shankaracharya says, when a person dies, that person is going back to the Father. And it is a moment of rejoicing rather than of sorrow because he is attaining the ultimate state. Jesus actually said likewise in the Gospel of St. John at the Last Supper. He said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. One definition of love is that love is for welfare in appreciation of truth. With this belief, and when the welfare of the other is in the heart, then their death is a cause for joy. For this to be a practical reality, there needs to be appreciation of truth, i.e. what happens after death. Now, if we truly believe the third possibility, that we are eternal, then our whole view changes. As Khalil Gibran said in his book, The Prophet, your children are not your children. They are life's longing to express itself. With this view, nobody belongs to you. So if we are eternal, what is birth? Now in Sanskrit, the word for birth means appearance of a form in time. Forms appear and disappear. It is not the same as existence and non-existence, but just appearance and disappearance. Birth is your appearance and death is your disappearance, but not ceasing to exist. What actually is death, death? Well, death does not annihilate you. It only annihilates the body. It is only the body which is born and dies. You, who are eternal, are birthless and deathless. Dying for those who know they are eternal, is like discarding clothes and then putting on new ones. There is a continuous line of life and birth and death are like two commas on the line. Everything that is born must die. Why not everything that dies must be born again? Why do we accept one and refuse to accept the other? There is only one way to avoid death, and that is to avoid being born. 
So hard luck. Everything manifest in creation after fulfilling its destiny goes back to its cause. In fact, in a life, there are many deaths within the one life. The baby lasts about two years and then it dies. And then you have a child and that child lasts about ten years and then it dies. And then you have a teenager which, thank God, only lasts about six years. <laughs> and then it dies. And then you have a youth, and it lasts a certain while, and it dies. And then you have middle age. There's no trace of the baby anymore, or the child, or the teenager. And we grieve at none of them. We do not know the line of life. We only know the appearance bit. And has been said in previous talks, when a baby is born, the baby cries and the onlookers are joyful. And when a man dies, the onlookers cry, but perhaps the man is joyful. It's the last time he's ever going to have to see you. <laughs> Death is not painful. But the fear of death is very painful. Nature has arranged things in such a way that before death actually sets in, complete insensibility is produced and one cannot feel death taking place. When we understand life and death, then we shall approach it as Socrates did. He is now being condemned to death and he speaks to the judges. And he says, Wherefore, O judges, be of good cheer about death, and know of a certainty that no evil can happen to a good man, either in life or after death. He and his are not neglected by the gods, nor has my own approaching end happened by mere chance. But I see clearly that the time has arrived when it was better for me to die and be released from trouble. Wherefore the oracle gave no sign. For which reason also I am not angry with my condemners or with my accusers. They have done me no harm, although they did not mean to do me any good. And for this I may gently blame them. The hour of departure has arrived, and we go our ways, I to die and you to live, which is better God only knows. Now, if we could turn to the causes of grief, what causes grief to arise in us? And there are two primary causes. One is ignorance, and by ignorance I mean ignoring the facts. And the second is impure love or love with a limit. And to first of all, to deal with ignoring the facts. So, the first thing is, the facts are that time is indifferent to none. Time destroys 
everything. When all else is asleep, time is awake. Youth, beauty, life, possessions, health. Time takes them all away. Why grieve for that which is universal and inevitable? The second fact that tends to be ignored is that grief indulged in never becomes light. By dwelling on it, one cannot lessen it. Grief produces neither profit, nor virtue, nor happiness. And grief increases on remembrance of the loss. The third fact, which is ignored, is that all creatures are like members of a caravan bound to the same destination. When death encounters all, it matters very little whom it meets first. The fourth fact is that all relationships are transitory. They will come to pass. The union with brother, mother, father and friend is like that of travellers at an inn. After a lifetime, you all move on. The fifth fact is that by indulging in grief, one cannot get back the dead, nor can one die oneself. And the sixth is an analogy that I read in a book called the Mahabharata, and it said, as amongst earthen pots, some break while still on the potter's wheel, some break while partially shaped, some break as soon as brought into shape, some while in course of being removed from the wheel, some after removal from the wheel. Some break while wet, some break while dry, some while being burnt, some while being removed from the kiln, and some after removal from the kiln, and some while being used. Likewise, some die in the womb, some on the day after, some after a fortnight, some on the expiration of one or two years, some in youth, some in middle age, and some when old. And when such is the natural course of the world, why would we grieve? Now to turn to impure love, or love with a limit, all demands nullify love. The beloved should be free to live and free to die. They should be set free in one's love. Attachment produces the demands. And with the demands comes non-acceptance, and with non-acceptance, the grief. With impure love, you have a desire for physical proximity. Physical proximity, or the desire for it, is not true love. If so, how could one truly love God? 
But just as food mixed with poison becomes poison, love mixed with attachment becomes poison and produces grief. True love only produces gratitude. For example, the man who founded the school of philosophy, his name was Leon McLaren, and I can say that I've never loved as I loved that man, or loved that man. But when he died, there was only gratitude. I was just so grateful that I had met him and that he had allowed me to spend time with him. I wasn't aggrieved that it was cut short. Just grateful. With affection, you will be affected, i.e. grieve. But with love, you will be free and unmoved. Grief enters an empty heart. If it's full, there is no room for the grief. Our lives and our span of love is just too small, and there's so much space for the grief. And to give an analogy, if you happen to have a dog and you, you love this dog and you bring him to the vet and the vet says, look, his time is up, we're going to have to put him down, you will grieve ordinarily, but the vet doesn't grieve. Now the vet is someone, or if he's a wise vet, or he or she's a wise vet, is somebody who's dedicated their life to the health and welfare of dogs. You're happy to care for one. You wouldn't be so happy to care for a couple of hundred and a couple of cows and sheep and pigs thrown in as well. But a vet is happy to because they dedicate their lives to the health and welfare of the animal kingdom. So one could say that they have a far greater love of animals than you and I. And yet they do not grieve when your dog dies. Why? Because their hearts are full of love for animals, whereas you and I love one. And the love of one animal cannot fill a heart, nor can the love of one man or woman or a number of children. The heart is much bigger than that. Now, how can the pain of grief be eased, either in ourselves or others? Well, what is really necessary is to understand grief and to understand the process of grief. We need to understand that it is often a long and torturous process. It can have distinct stages to it, starting with resentment, then moving to resignation, then to a form of forgetting through distraction, and finally, acceptance. There are often feelings of guilt and anger, perhaps bewilderment, denial, or withdrawal. And there are many ups and downs. Just when you think you're over, it comes back again. All this is a natural process once there is grief. And understanding this helps. We should understand that ordinary grieving takes time. 
lots of time. And people need plenty of time to talk. Grievers need company. Do not think they do not want your company, that they need to be alone. Grievers need company, so never doubt that. And grievers need to talk. So one listens without judgment, and you let them go over and over again various details, which they will do. So for the griever, be available to them. One should also understand that grief forces the griever to look at the life, to reevaluate the previous values, to find purpose to life. It should be seen as an opportunity to start effectively a new life. That an old one has ended, one door has shut, and another one has opened. It may not appear as if there is a new door, but there is, and there always is. One should seek the new door, the new life, and one should go through it. Another positive aspect to grief, which is useful to understand, is that suffering, albeit not welcome, is a great teacher. So one should ask oneself, what is this grief teaching me? What is it telling me? One thing it may be teaching you is compassion. Or it may be showing you the errors in your life to date. Or it may also send you in search of true wisdom, of everlasting happiness, or the peace that passeth all understanding. If we grieve, we should understand that the dead should be honored. Edmund Burke said, the true way to mourn the dead is to take care of the living who belong to them. So honor those who have gone before by fulfilling their wishes and aspirations. And the question you have to ask yourself then is, do they wish you to be miserable? Lastly, one should look at grief straight in the eye. Never run away from it. Grief is a negativity, and negativity is never the optimum way of dealing with any situation. Ask yourself, are your thought processes creating the grief right now? Then ask yourself, is there not something more useful I could be doing? When you don't want to suffer the pain or carry the burden anymore, when you are truly fed up with the suffering, when you've had enough, then you will let go the grief. Well, how are we to be free of grief in our life? Now, neither prowess, nor wealth, nor friend, nor well-wisher can cure a man of his grief. But wisdom can. 
And here are four aspects to this wisdom that will ensure no grief in your life. The first is that there be acceptance in the heart. This acceptance is not fatalism, but it's a welcoming of one's life. One embraces all of life, not just the good, but all of one's life. All grief is resistance, and so acceptance means no grief. Grief does not dissolve the situation, but only maintains it. If you observe the grief, you will see that it serves no useful purpose. You accept, because in the end, there is the realization that what is cannot be undone, because it already is. All suffering in life arises from non-acceptance of what is. Situations do not actually create the suffering. It is the non-acceptance of them which creates the suffering. And when you accept, then you are no longer dependent on the outcome of things. And thus all fear goes. You are immediately freed of the mind and its contents of sorrow. And you thus reconnect with your true self whose only content is undisturbed joy. Acceptance does not transform the situation, but it does transform you. The second aspect of wisdom is living in the present moment. One needs to live for now. One needs to come out of the past and the future and their dark shadows. Past and future exist only in the mind and it is in the mind where sorrow or grief resides. Your true self exists in the present and joy exists in yourself in the present. Meister Eckhart said, Time is what keeps the light from reaching us. There is no greater obstacle to God than time. God is joy and God is in the now. Live in time and you live outside God. You live outside joy. Grief needs time. It cannot survive in the now. All problems ultimately are mind-made and need time to survive. There are no problems in truth, only situations. When the mind is full of grief, there is no room for anything to enter, no room for a solution to arise. You cannot be happy in the future. Happiness can only be experienced now, so you can only be happy now. What tomorrow holds is not the problem. It is loss of now or loss of presence, which is the problem. With loss of presence, there is loss of self, 
And with loss of self, there is loss of joy. And this is the emptiness that grief occupies. Ask yourself, what is wrong with this moment now? You can always cope with the present moment. But you may find the future difficult to cope with. Only the present moment can free you of the past or the future. More time cannot free you of time. Only the present moment can free you of time and thus of grief which exists in the past or the future. The third aspect of wisdom which will ensure no grief is to truly love. So one should love fully now. Resolve all issues then there will be no regret, no guilt, only gratitude. Love unconditionally and be grateful. There is no need to blot out the memory of those who have departed. As one lady said in the philosophy class, she said, when I remember my mother, then I am happy. When I dwell on my loss, then I am sad. So let there be love of the other, let there be memory of the other, but let there be no pity for me. With the sense of ownership, which is not true love, comes attachment. So do not have the idea that the person belongs to you. Without ownership, there will be no sense of gain or loss. Only the ego keeps account of what is gained and what is lost. We should also consider our relationships as open-ended, like rental contracts. They can end at any time. If you do this, then you will be grateful for the time you get. But if you have a 50-year view and it ends after one year, then you will waste time and you will grieve the loss of the imaginary 49 years. So one should spend one's time with the beloved as if you only had one month or one day together. The fourth aspect of wisdom which will ensure that there's no grief in one's life is a very interesting point. We do not need to know that the one who died is eternal for there to be no grief. We need to know that the one who lives is eternal. That you and I are eternal. One needs to acknowledge the facts, the inevitability of death, to live life to the full in the light of the facts. As an Indian sage called Nisargadatta said, be friendly with the inevitable. And finally, 
realize that you have a choice, that grief is not inevitable. As Viktor Frankl said, the one true freedom which cannot be taken from you is the choice as to how you respond to events. Do not collapse under the events of life. Exercise your free will. In the imitation of Christ, it says, the events of life do not weaken the man. They only show what he is made of. So with these four, the practice of acceptance, living in the present moment, loving truly, and understanding true knowledge, grief will never, ever, ever visit you. Well, to bring this to an end, as was said before, wisdom dissolves grief, so let us end with the wisdom of Lord Sri Krishna as spoken in the Bhagavad Gita. This is a selection of verses where he deals with grief. Lord Sri Krishna said, Why grieve for those for whom no grief is due, and yet profess wisdom. The wise grieve neither for the dead nor for the living. There was never a time when I was not, nor thou, nor these princes were not. There will never be a time when we shall cease to be. As the soul experiences in this body, infancy, youth and old age, so finally it passes into another. The wise have no delusion about this. That which is not shall never be. That which is shall never cease to be. To the wise, these truths are self-evident. The spirit which pervades all that we see is imperishable. Nothing can destroy the spirit. It was not born, it will never die, nor once having been can it ever cease to be, unborn, eternal, ever enduring, yet most ancient, the spirit dies not when the body is dead. As a man discards his threadbare robes and puts on new, so the spirit throws off its worn-out bodies and takes fresh ones. It is named the unmanifest, the unthinkable, the immutable. Wherefore, knowing the spirit as such, thou hast no cause to grieve. Even if thou thinkest of it as constantly being born and constantly dying, even then, O mighty man, thou still hast no cause to grieve. For death is as sure for that which is born as birth is for that which is dead. Therefore, grieve not for what is inevitable. The end and beginning of beings are unknown. We see only the intervening formations. Then what cause is there for grief? Ultimately, nothing will free you of grief but wisdom. And this wisdom is the knowledge of who am I. And the Gita says, I am eternal, unborn, undying, and ever blissful. 
Come to know this, and grief will never visit you. And that's the talk. So, thank you. What would you like to ask? Uh, Shane, I'll just begin by saying that I agree wholeheartedly with everything you said. But I do wonder if you're just actually missing out on something. And this is in regard to sort of the instinctual side of things. Maybe it's not really it should be called grief at all. But let's say just take something like the phenomenon of a person being able to cry. Yes. I mean, it's just a natural thing and it's there. And it's not there. It's there for a reason, presumably. And I think most adults will cry in that situation of a death and so on, rather than, let's say, a child will cry for umpteen different reasons. So I've had experiences myself, right, of sort of spontaneous reactions to the sight of people dying and so on. And I would also have to say that it's not necessarily a painful or suffering involved. There is even a sense of privilege or even a joy involved in it. So what I'm saying really is the paraphernalia, if you like, of grief, the actual weeping and yes. look at that man, he's in an awful state sort of thing, is not necessarily a suffering. And I imagine it must have, let's say, a cathartic purpose or value. Yes. Well, first of all, the fact that you don't grieve does not mean there will not be tears. All of that may flow. But you are unmoved. You're unaffected. You're not dissipated by the experience. When you grieve, it drains all your energy. Totally, it leaves you washed out. The experience you've described left you elevated, honored to have participated in the event, all of those things. If you look at, now this is not proof, not proof at all, but when an adult cries, it leaves a mark on their face or in their eyes for quite a period afterwards. So that if you cried and you stopped crying, an hour or two later, people will say, is there something wrong with you? They just notice from your countenance or the color of your eyes that you have cried. You take when a child cries. Now, it could cry more vigorously than you will, ordinarily. But about 10 seconds after it stopped crying, you can't tell. There's just these bright eyes looking back at you. The event is something which happens and passes. It doesn't hold on. Grieving is a holding on. I was at a funeral recently where a friend of mine, his wife died, and it was a sad event, and there was sadness in the heart. And then the day ended, and another day began. You don't not participate, but you're not defeated by the event. You transcend it ultimately. There is an instinctive intelligence and there is a thinking type of intelligence and a reasoning intelligence and an emotional intelligence. But they operate at different levels. At an instinctive level, you will seek to protect your body. So if an animal attacks you, you will lash out. Or if somebody sticks a match, a lit match at you, you will recoil. But if your son or daughter or wife or loved one was in a house and the house was on fire, you wouldn't allow that intelligence to override a superior intelligence. 
you would say, irrespective of the pain of entering this fire, I'm going in to save my daughter or son or wife. So albeit there is that intelligence and it does operate and it produces tears and it will produce grief and all these sort of things. It's not the highest intelligence. And so man should always look to the highest intelligence. And the two highest intelligences are reason and love. I don't know if, if that helps. Yes, anybody else? My sister died recently, this year in April, and we were very, very close. But I didn't shed one tear. Yes. On the day of her funeral, we were singing and celebrating her life because yes. she was a wonderful person and she was 80. I wonder if there's anything wrong with me that I didn't cry. No. You know. <laughs> You're not obliged to cry, but if the tears come, you should not deny them. No, they didn't. I wasn't no. in China. Sometimes they come and sometimes they don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have buried people absolutely close to me and no tears came. And I have been at funerals of people that I only partially knew and tears came. Yeah. Okay. So. Thank you. Yes, any, oh yes. Hi, I just want to say first of all that I thoroughly enjoyed the lecture. Good. And it helped me quite a lot. Good. Because I'm trying to come to terms with a grieving. And although at the time I was so relieved for the person going, because they were in so much pain, yes. I was actually delighted that they went. And I feel I'm dealing with it, if you like. Yes. And still there are times I cannot, from listening to the lecture, I'm obviously caught in a grievance that I can't get out of through the feelings and the emotions inside me. There are times I'm fine, and there are times then when it'll come to a point, and I say, I just can't handle this stuff. I thought this was all gone. I yes. thought I had dealt with it. But yet the feelings and the emotions inside still churn up. And it's not that I want to dwell on or I, I'm enjoying it or anything like that. I don't know how to handle it. So what is the key of coming away from the feelings and the emotions? Not to be allowing this to sap your energy up. Yes. Well, that's a very good question. The feelings and the emotions may very well come up. The real key is not to identify with them. Now, if I can just take a much more minor situation. When I was asked to give talks at the start, many years ago, there was tremendous fear in the being. So I wouldn't be able to eat that day and I would laugh uproariously at my jokes and all sorts of things. <laughs> and there would be butterflies in the stomach. And I would try lots of ways to eliminate this fear, normally through occupying myself. So I might ask somebody to be with me and talk to me, or I might try and distract myself by reading something. One day I realized this is just the way it is. For whatever reason, this is how this system responds to being asked to give a talk. And the fear still arose, and the butterflies and all those sort of things. But there was no longer any attempt to avoid it or suppress it. And it's just like watching a film. It's just something happening. You ever see the way a child plays with its own foot? It's as if it doesn't belong to it. It's just, you know, it's playing with something that's down there. It's totally detached from it. And so these emotions may arise, but do not become the emotion. 
If that happens, for example, nowadays it is an exceptionally rare thing that fear does arise with regard to a talk. If it does arise, it's very, very nominal. It just presents itself, and I recognize it as an old habit that arises in this system. And I don't try and short its life, and it just goes again. So you can let the emotion arise without becoming identified with it. It's very hard to feel the pain of it. I can't. I mean, I'm not going to go around every day. I'm not. What's happening is I'm fine. I can go along to a point, and then a memory will come in, or I will think about, or something will bring to mind my mother, right? Yes. Whom I'm speaking about. And then the overwhelming emotion and pain and stress that comes about with that. Yes. That's what I can't deal with. So I'm wondering well, if there's another way. There are many ways, but just to give you one way, one way to deal with pain is to go right to the center of it. Right to the very center of it. Do not avoid it. Do not try and hold it at bay. The resistance is what exaggerates or multiplies the pain. Now again, I'm going to take a very simple example. It's not at the level of a death of a mother at all. Somebody had advised me this when I was in early on in the school of philosophy. And I thought, rubbish. Pain, you just don't want any pain in your life. But anyway, I found myself at a dentist. And I wouldn't exactly be a lover of visiting the dentist. Anyway, I found myself there. And whatever he, this man had to do, it was quite painful. In fact, it was very, very painful. And I decided I'm not going to avoid the pain. I'm not going to think of a holiday in the island of Bali or something like this. I'm going to go right to the center of pain. So I went to where the drill was grinding its way into my little pearly white tooth. I went right to the center and I stayed there. Right at the point. And at that point, there was just a sensation. There was no desire to move away. It didn't affect me. That which was watching that very point was totally unaffected. And this can be true. It's like, for example, you can forget about pain. The existence of the pain itself is not the problem. So again, if I take a mundane example, I remember once playing a rugby match, and I was injured about halfway through the match, and it was a cup match, and we didn't have substitutes, so I was asked to play on. And such was my desire to win the cup match and total involvement that I forgot about the injury. Now identifying with the cup or the possibility of winning a cup, the pain had no effect. So you can do it with identifying with something else. And that is simply, instead of looking here, you look there. Away from the pain to something else. But if you look at the pain, look right at it. Go right up to it. At the very center of the pain, you are unmoved. It's a bit like, you know, in a carnival, you've got those things that go around in circles, and they've got a horse and a little car. Carousel, right? The further you are out from the center, the more difficult it is to stay on the thing. At the very center, there's the minimum of movement. And it's easy to stand there. But if you stand out towards the, the rim, you'll get spun off. It's exactly the same with pain. Go right to the center. We try and stay at the rim, and of course it beats us to death out there. So go to the very, very center. That will do it. If you look pain in the eye, this pain, which is an emotional pain now, not a physical pain you're talking about, but if you look it straight in the eye and you go right up to it and let it meet you, it will be defeated. 
and it will never come back again with the same force. And again, to use an analogy, if, if you remember in days of old, these old cowboy films, where there used to be a stallion in town that nobody could break until the guy came into town. He says, I can break that horse. And he would get thrown off a number of times, and eventually he would stay on. And the horse's will would submit to the will of the man. Well, it's a bit like that. If you really let it come, with its full force and you meet it, it will never come back with the same strength again. And you meet it each time, let it come fully, face it right at its center, and it will go. So, yes, have a one other thing I just wanted to ask about was um, being infinite. When you were given the lecture there and you were reading the material in that, parts of it could be appreciated and an acknowledgement of it. But when it comes to the part that you're infinite, the mind just doesn't seem to be able to comprehend that you go on after. So can you say something about how, how does one appreciate this infinity? All right. Well, the mind will never appreciate infinity because the mind is finite. And it gets lost in imagination. So again, just to take an example, if you're out at night and it's a clear night and you look up and you say, God, there's a lot of stars in the sky. And you say, there must be a million stars in the sky. And then you look a bit wide and you say, there must be hundreds of millions. And then you use the word billions and then you go on to trillions. And then you go on to zillions and then you get fed up and you go in. <laughs> because the mind, it can only go so far. It can only conceptualize. So it can't go beyond a concept. Well, how do you get an understanding of this yes. infinity? I give very long answers. So, they... <laughs> In fact, they could be accused of being infinite. <laughs> so, so you will not do it with the mind. If you try to imagine infinity, if you try to imagine going on forever, this will not satisfy the mind. So I'm just saying to you, you can't do it that way. What the talk was saying is that fundamentally you're eternal. Infinite can have a beginning but go on forever. But eternal is always was, is, and always will be. So just let's look at it like that. The way to discover eternity is now. It's not a matter of projecting the mind into the future. You don't have to wait until death to know that you are eternal. You discover you are eternal now. And the way you discover that you are eternal now, you discover that which does not change. And if it doesn't change, then it doesn't die. Because death is a change. No. It's self-experienced. Not the mind knows, you know, way beyond the mind. It's known with a certainty which the mind doesn't enjoy. You know that you are and that it does not change. That's the key. Trying to use the mind by projecting, you know, images of infinity and all sorts of things or having faith or belief, all of those will be either tested or shattered with the events of life. Yes. Gravis, I believe the, the Latin word, the root of grief, means heavy or serious. 
And when we lose a loved one, I think it's inevitable that we carry a heavy or a serious load. I think there's a natural healing period, and your talk, which I enjoyed immensely, I think is very helpful to deal with this healing period. I think it must take its course, and hopefully your talk would be available on a disc at some time when, when this uh, inevitability arises for us all. I mean, of course, it has risen already, I'm sure, but it, it will rise again. So it, it's very helpful dealing with this period of grief. I think that you mentioned a couple of things there which I agree fully with. A love of philosophy helps, of course. And in regard to what the lady was saying here, I think the old advice we used to hear years ago was, first, you haven't lost somebody. They've just gone ahead and you'll meet again. I think that's a nice little story because it sort of tries to explain what eternity is all about. And we're all part of this process. Yes, it's so a you, nice little story. Nice little story. And it, it, I think it does, to me anyhow, it, it has signified a lot, and it's, I found a great, great consolation in it. I think the other point you mentioned is how helpful a close friend is in friendship generally at the time of bereavement. I think it's wonderful, the, the support you can get, and I think this is part of the healing process as well. Sorry, just to say this, it needs to be understood. What this talk is saying is that there is no need for a healing process. There is no need. The healing process will be there if there is not full understanding of life. Then it is natural that there be a healing process, and it will take its time. And then there are aids to it, and there are nice sentiments which help. But you do not have to go through the stages of resentment, resignation, distraction by filling your life full of other activities, and then acceptance. Wisdom will take you to that on the instant, if you wish it. On the instant, grief can be dissolved. If the wisdom is not there, then there is a natural process. But you have to choose. This is what Viktor Frankl said. You have the ultimate freedom to choose how you wish to respond to events. Even a concentration camp cannot make you grieve. I agree with what you're saying, Shane, but at the same time, I must make the point that I think there is a natural... No. Process. Just, just finish. I think there is a natural process there, and it's wrong to cut it off instantly. I think it shouldn't be negative. It shouldn't be negative. But I think it is part of being a human being. Grief and you is must, a negativity. I think the, the modern idea that had a church service that is a celebration of the life, yes. that doesn't mean that there isn't grief there. I mean, grief doesn't have to be... I suppose it is, it is, it is regarded as a negative process, but it, my point, briefly, is that grief can be positive, too, and the love of philosophy helps you to cope with it in a natural way. It's much more than that. Philosophy or wisdom will not help you cope with grief. It will free you of grief on the instant, if you wish it. If the wisdom is not available to you, well, then there is a natural process, as you say. And that is absolutely fine. But there is a higher step where there can be freedom from it. Lord Sri Krishna was not lying when he says, the wise grieve neither for the dead nor the living. The wise, because they are wise, they do not suffer grief. Yes. Um, my brother died two years ago. He died suddenly. And I think the feelings that we got from a family, my mum and dad are still alive as well, yes. was that experience death, certainly, like I'm still young. I was 24 and my brother died. And it's been 
sort of a growing. It's like I've grown to be a better person. It doesn't mean that you don't miss the person. You can miss the person, but I think you become a better person for it in a way. Absolutely. If there is grief, if there is, then it can have tremendous positive results. You can grow. For example, when I was a young man, I did suffer a loss and grieved like everybody, or really a lot of people in this room have grieved. And that was tremendous for the growth of being that arose from it. Its fruit was that I never suffered grief again. Yeah. That's how powerful the event was. So yes, it can have a positive side. This is why one always embraces all of life. Life is teaching you something. And you take all of life, the so-called positive and the negative, and you can turn it to good use so that it's a benefit to you and to others. But there is another level, another level, where you're free, where you're free of the... You're not learning, you know. And that doesn't take two years or 22 years. It's like an instant. And you can have it on the very first instant or you can have it a year later or two years later. What wisdom is, is immediate illumination. It's not a process. It's not like doing a geometry question where you, you go through about seven stages and then say QED. It's immediate. I've told this story a hundred times, so I'm going to tell it once more. <laughs> when I was a young man, I went out with this uh, young lady and I absolutely loved her. And she died in a car crash. Uh, I was away at the time, and when I came back, the burial had already taken place. And I was informed of the death. And I went into grieving as human beings do. So I went through everything, all the unbelievable anger and resentment and bewilderment and the desire to end my own life and all of those sort of things. And I lashed out at all the ones who loved me and all that sort of stuff. I was taking no sympathy from anybody. And I used to rock in this rocking chair for hours, wishing that life would come to an end. And anyway, after a while, one morning, I'm rocking away in this rocking chair, hoping that life will end. And I, my head is bowed down, and I notice my chest. And basically, at this point, the, the sentiment in my heart is, I do not wish to live. But I look down and I notice that my chest is expanding and contracting with each breath. And I ask myself, there suddenly a question appeared in the mind. If you hate life, why are you drawing in breath? For some reason I looked around and the kitchen table was to my left and there was a, a bowl, an empty cereal bowl there. And there were three packets of cereal on the table. And I had eaten from the bowl. And there were the remnants of one of the cereals. And I asked myself another question. I said, if I hate life so much, why did I eat my favorite cereal? And the grief went on an instant. Because I knew that I loved life. I absolutely loved it. So I got out of the rocking chair, and that was it. And grief has never come again. It just dissolved in an instant. I knew it wasn't true. Sometimes you get these moments and there is a total understanding of something and then there's no more process because the light goes on in an instant. 
and wisdom will do it for you. But if wisdom doesn't visit you, and perhaps it won't, well then, let the process be as natural as possible and let it be as easy as possible. And there are aids to those who grieve. And they should make full use of that. But there is a higher level where one is free. Yes, anybody else? Shane, in the last 10 years, I've had two members of my family who died. One who died uh, as a result of an illness and the other who was killed in a road accident. I went through all that period of resentment and feeling anger and for quite a while, especially after the first, my first sister died. And I know they still get flashbacks to that. If I see something that uh, relates to her illness, yes, I still get flashbacks to it. Uh, is you know, is that grief, or how do I get over that, or will I ever get over it? Uh, well, with full understanding, it will go. It will go. Now, again, I, I'm using very mundane examples, and that's not to insult the experience. Yeah. But it's like this. When you're a child and you're studying mathematics, normally you're taught your tables. And you repeat them again and again and again and again. On a Monday, somebody could ask you, what are seven sevens? And you say 49. And they could ask you on a Tuesday and you say 123. And you say with absolute confidence. And it bears no relation to what you said on Monday. Because it is only at the level of information. But then something magical happens. And that information turns into understanding. And it becomes established in your being so you can never forget it again. So that seven sevens is 49. You don't have to rehearse it anymore. It is now converted into understanding or wisdom. If your understanding of life was true wisdom, then grief or sorrow would never visit you again. But if not, then it will come back again and again. What tends to happen, with, or what does happen with grief, is the heart closes down. It becomes very, very small. And it becomes so small that its only possession, the one that has died, empties it. It's like when I was a young boy and if somebody gave me 50p and I lost it, I sort of cried for hours because it was my only money. But now if I lose, whatever, 50 euros, I don't cry because there is so much more. The wealth is larger. When the heart is very, very big, then the loss of one object from within that heart will not cause any pain. When the heart becomes very small, then the loss of that one possession will cause immense grief. Now, what tends to happen, with the grief, the heart becomes tiny. And basically, it's only me and the departed one. Over time, the heart begins to open out again. You begin to be aware of others. There are others in your life who you love. And you turn out to them, and you begin to care for them, and respond, and have full relationship with them. So the turning out, 
allows the grief to subside. And the more the heart turns out and joins in with others, then the grieving subsides. But it has to turn out fully, and totally, 100% with wisdom, for it to go completely. Otherwise, occasionally, there will be these pangs. The ultimate freedom is from wisdom. Socrates was not afraid to die. Jesus wasn't afraid to die. You and I are afraid to die. With wisdom, we wouldn't be. With wisdom, we would lose nothing. Nothing is lost when somebody dies. We are like, again, to use a very mundane example, we are like children. When the mother leaves the room, we burst into tears. You know a little child and the mother leaves the room and the child bursts into tears and the mother appears again 30 seconds later and the, and the child stops crying. It doesn't understand that disappearance doesn't mean loss. Again, if I may take this man, Leon McLaren, the fact that he's not physically present doesn't mean there's any loss. Anything that he ever gave me still lives on. All the wisdom that he attempted to pass on is still there and available. So nothing has been lost. Would you say the same to somebody, to the relations of, say, somebody who has committed suicide? Yes, it, it, it doesn't make any difference what the circumstances are. There's just a particular tragedy with suicide. But it's still the same. What birth is, is a change of form. And what death is, is a change of form. So, for example, uh, to take a very simple example, if I love the ring and somebody steps on it or takes a hammer to it, well, then I will grieve at the loss of my ring. But if I love the gold, then the fact that the gold is now in a new shape will make no difference. And when you truly love, let's say, if we assume that my wife truly loves me, is a fact that I have changed shape over the years and could be considered to be considerably less attractive than I was. <laughs> but her love has remained constant because her love is not directed to the shape but to the substance. That's wisdom. And all that happens in death is the form changes. There's no loss of substance. One knows that, then death will hold no fear for you, and there'll be no grief. Yes, anybody else? Good evening, Shane. Good evening. Thank you very much for the lecture. I enjoyed it very much, found it very helpful. I agree maybe with 99% of what you said. My son died three months ago. Yes. I've already gone through grieving. My husband died, and I think I maybe accepted it better, uh, in a better way, yes. also want a better word. Um, but my son now, I don't feel any resentment. I don't feel any anger. I feel total love. I understand most of the philosophy, but I still find myself at times sad, 
careful not that often. Yes. I just loved him so much. I think the more one loves, the more one will miss. Let it be God, let it be anything. And I would still see everyone else as nothing other than myself, which I've been taught. And I would nearly go as far as saying if it was hopefully not a little child down the road who died, if I would nearly feel the same love and compassion and sorrow and all of that. And I just wonder why sometimes I might feel, gosh, nearly dizzy, like, not all of the time. No, no, I, I, I understand. must say maybe only 20% of the time yeah. since my son died, because I have learned a lot through philosophy, and I'm very, very grateful. Maybe it's just because it's only three months ago, because I just feel in time I'll become totally, I do accept as well. Mm. I do accept God's will. And I accepted all the nice, everything nice about my son. He had a lot of very fine qualities. But I still feel, well, I don't want to, it sounds a bit selfish when I say it that way. I just don't know why I'm feeling the way I am. Oh, I understand, I understand. I'd love to know this instant thing, if I could just, do you know what I mean? If I could just feel the grieving gone instantly. Yes. And I will accept yes. that as well, if yes. it doesn't go Well, what you could do. What you could do, this wisdom will arise on an instant with two preconditions. One is that your heart is full of acceptance, and secondly, that your mind is in the present moment. You don't have to go on any course, you don't have to read lots of books or anything like that. When grief is visiting you, as you've just described, it's when the mind is referring back to the past. Or it might be projecting to a, an imaginary empty future. But it is leaving the present moment. In the present moment, grief cannot survive. It has no place in the present moment. It can only exist when the mind visits the past or projects itself into the future. And this is the key. So the discipline, this is you know, very challenging, obviously, but the discipline, if I may give you a discipline, the discipline is that every time your mind wanders to the past, bring it back to the present moment. And the present moment could be walking down the street, it could be listening to somebody, it could be talking, it could be having a cup of coffee. But bring it back to the present moment, again and again and again. This will not result in you forgetting your son. Not at all. What it will absolutely allow you to do is to have full memory of this young man without the pain. Well, I do have full memory. Like I could just but without say the pain. Yeah. Without the pain. Yeah. When the mind enters into the past or into an imaginary future, then it will grieve. This is inevitable. In the present moment, it can't. Again, I've... Sorry, I need a whole um, series of new stories, so I'm going to repeat another story that I've told. And this, again, is much more mundane than the experiences you're relating to me. Years later, after this other lady had died, I met another lady, and I also fell in love with her. And we went out together for a while, and I thought we were going to marry. There's an unhappy ending to the story. <laughs> 
In fact, it's a very happy ending because I did marry the woman that I married to. So it's a very happy ending. Anyway, I thought, and perhaps we thought, we were going to marry. She said to me that she was going off to America for three months. And such was my naivety that I believed her. Anyway, we went to the airport. And I was heavy-hearted because the thought of three months without this delightful person was just awful. Didn't want to contemplate it at all. And there may have been a few cheers, and we embraced and kissed and said goodbye. And as I walked away, there was another magic moment. The mind fell absolutely still. Absolutely still. And a question appeared in the mind. And it said, if she was only gone for a month, how would you feel? And so I answered that. I said, well, I'd feel pretty bad because a month, you know, it was July, so there was 31 days in it. It was even worse. So I said, I, feel, I still feel very bad. Then this other question here, well, if she was gone for a week, how would you feel? I thought, well, I wouldn't feel too bad. In fact, I remember when she was away for a week, or I was away for a week, and it wasn't that bad. And then another question emerged, well, what would you do if it was a day that she was gone? Well, I thought, well, I sure wouldn't really mind that at all. Day on your own is not a bad thing. (laughs) (laughs) So I wouldn't mind at all. And then, anyway, the question went on, what if she was just gone for a minute? And I said, I wouldn't mind at all. At all, at all, at all. So I decided to live the three months moment by moment. And I didn't miss her, and she never came back. (laughs) (laughs) And this is very important in case people misunderstand the story. It wasn't because I didn't miss her that she didn't come back. I think she had already decided. (laughs) So that's point number one. Point number two is me not missing her did not mean that I did not love her. I love my wife. At this moment, I do not miss her. Right now, I do not miss her. The present moment, just telling that story to emphasize a point, the present moment frees you of everything. Absolutely everything. So whenever grief does visit you, or whatever word you want to use, watch where the mind has gone. And ask yourself, is it in the past or the future? And bring it back to the present moment. What I often do, and I put it into the talk, is that if this mind starts to worry about something, or if any sadness arises in it over something past, I ask myself, is there something better I could be doing now? And there always is. There's always something better. And once I engage in that, the other is dissolved. So that's the key. But surely it wouldn't be much of a compliment to a person if you didn't think about them at times. And hopefully you can think about them without... You know, surely it's okay. You do, you do not have them. to limit the memory of them. For example, mm-hmm. if I take Leon McLaren, who I consider to be a wise man, I refer to him as often as I can. I refer to the memory of him, of what he said, mm-hmm. or how he lived his life. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you're not trying to eliminate a past event. A past event is a past event. It had its 
existence. So you're not trying to eliminate it. But you can take the pain out of it or the grieving out of it. So the truth of the matter is, I thought it was a marvelous statement by this lady. She said, when I think of my mother, I'm happy. When I think of my loss, I am sad. So think of your mother or think of your son. But the loss is a different thing. When one is considering one's loss, one has left the son or the departed one and moved unto me. And me is a tiny little entity. And the heart is so big. It's like, do you know when you try and stuff clothes into a suitcase? You know when you've, you've brought sort of three suitcases of clothes with one suitcase? And you try and ram it in. Well, if the human being, which has a heart that is limitless, a heart that is capable of loving all, tries to confine it down to me or me and my son, it puts a strain on this heart. It's too tight for it. Acceptance opens the heart out again. And suddenly one becomes aware of loved ones all around you. Thank you very much. That clarifies a good bit. So good. it's okay to have tears of joy Absolutely. like you can have that. Thank I'll even supply the handkerchiefs. <laughs> now, any other question that somebody would like to ask? Yes. Um, I'd just like to say thank you very much for your wonderful speech. I've really enjoyed it. Good. And it's made me question, I suppose, my own understanding of life. I think I'm quite a philosophical type of person anyway, but it certainly made me question it more yes. and question my understanding of it. I'm a young widow. My husband died over a year ago, leaving me with a young boy. And I think when you say you can maybe get by without actually grieving, well, certainly you can't get by, I think, without facing uh, huge difficulties, certainly a whole change of life. I think, uh, certainly with the young child as well, you're dealing with their grief as well. So although say if I was to do what you said, although I can't go back now, not yeah. to grieve. Well, you've also got to deal with the grief of those, yes, those around you. And I think just one phrase that might help some people here tonight is just to always reach out to life. And I kept saying that to myself on the bad days, you know, that to keep reaching out. Yes, because exactly. sometimes it comes to a stage maybe when you feel maybe people aren't reaching out to you as much. But I think for you to continue reaching out, because I think there's so much to reach out to, and I think that's important, and it certainly does emphasize the value of life and how precious it is. Oh, absolutely. And every moment, and now I find even when my son calls to me, Mom, you know, tell me another story, I've got to do it because I just think that this is a precious moment. Absolutely. And I think living in the present is very important because certainly I would have had huge fears initially of how I'm going to face the future in many respects. Yes. And I think taking it day by day is probably the best thing. Absolutely. You see, it's like... If you're burnt, your hand will recoil. You will withdraw your hand from the pain. And grief is a way of withdrawing into an area where a healing process can take place. But it is very hard on those around you, and particularly those who are dependent on you, so that if a mother does withdraw, it is very difficult for the child. So your advice, or what you said, is absolutely spot on. The key is to turn out, not turn in to keep turning out. And one thing you could do, a lot of people are afraid of death. And a lot of people think, well, after the death of a loved one, life will be empty. And your son may have those ideas, but you can prove to him opposite. You can show him that one can bury a husband and live a full, loving, happy life. And if you did that for your son, then you've done a remarkable thing. You freed him of a common fear. 
you could be the last generation to suffer from that fear. That would be a wonderful thing to do. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. It certainly does. But I think, uh, I'm just wondering, do you have to go through it uh, once or else listen to your wonderful speech <laughs> the, the, <laughs> to, uh, uh, to well, realize this, you know? Well, you may. You may have to go through it once and you may have to go through it twice. Mm. I think what would be really useful if people could just get this from the talk, first of all, not to blame themselves. If there is grief, there is grief. That's the way it is. All right? So you don't beat yourself to death because there is grief. But it would be so useful to understand that it is not obligatory. Don't have to go through it. That wisdom takes you through it on an instant. Now, that may not arise, but at least to know that it's there, like to know there is a cure. My own belief is, like this lady dying, I think has been of tremendous help to Shane Mulhall, and it's been of tremendous help to anybody who's ever asked me about grief. So one can take an event that appears to be senseless and all that sort of stuff and turn it into something absolutely wonderful. As I said, your son can be freed of this fear through your example. And that would be just fantastic. So, yes, Thank anybody you. else? It's like this lady here. Hello, oh, Shane. Yes. I'm not quite sure of the question I want to ask, but yes. we were discussing it in the break about listening to somebody who's going through grief and giving them um, non-judgmental listening. What to do with somebody who is so attached to that, to wallowing in it, and this goes on for a, two or three years, and yes. it keeps coming up for them. Is there anything one can say to help another, to free another of that continuous spiral? Um, if it continues. Yes. Well, this is the way you would approach it. You only speak to them. You only try to take them out of it when they're ready. It's a bit like this. We're building a house at the moment, and there are people building one of these stone walls. There's this man building a stone wall, and I marvel. He hits the stone with a tap, and it breaks, and he's got exactly the right size to go in. Now, I would be beating this stone to death with a sledgehammer. <laughs> First of all, it wouldn't break, and then it would break in about 50 pieces, and I would have nothing. He just gives it a tap. He knows where to hit it, because he understands rocks, let's say. Now, if you really, really, really listen to someone, you know when they're ready. There's always an opening, say, in terms of alcoholism. Sometimes you might say to somebody, you have a problem with alcohol. You could say it 20,000 times, and the person can't hear. But the one time they're ready, you need to be there and to say it. You're better off not saying it when it's not appropriate, because it only creates a resistance. But you need to be there when it is ready. So with somebody, it may be that you have to let them work their own way through it. And so you just provide them with company, you let them talk, and they go over and over and over the events again and again and again. But that is their way of cleansing their system. But there will come a time when they will be tired of the burden. It's a bit like this. Let's say um, 
I have to really use my imagination now. You're going in the Wild West 200 years ago, and your wagon train breaks down. And you decide, I'm just going to carry the family silver and the evening dress and a few other things, okay? And you go walking along with these. And if somebody had said to you, don't bring the family silver and don't bring the dress and a few other things, you'd say no. And you'd hold on to them very, very tight. Anyway, after a few miles of carrying the family silver, <laughs> right? you don't care anymore. The burden becomes so heavy that you will gladly put it down. There does come a point when you get tired of the misery. And that's when you help the person. You help them just to let go. You just, you know, um, when a baby is falling asleep, and every time you try to take the bottle away from him, he wakes up again. <laughs> and his little fist goes like this. We're not going to sleep yet. <laughs> but then there comes that point just goes beyond a certain point and you can just lift the fingers and take the bottle out. Well, it's exactly the same with them. There comes a time when you really can help them. You can just help them at that last moment. But in a way, they have to make 95% of the journey themselves. But you can really help in that last 5%. So only you will know. There's no set rule. Does that make sense? So the key would be so much to give up wanting to help. No. Be very careful about your wanting to help. It's really no help. You're just being pushy. Does that make sense? It's their grief. They need to be allowed to resolve it in their time and in their way. Now, you do make offerings, but just like if I gave you a baby to look after, then you would feed it baby food. If I gave you a youth, well, then you'd give it a different food. And then, exactly, exactly. <laughs> So that's what you would do. So depending on the state of the person, you would feed them with different things. Say somebody had just buried their husband. You don't go up to them you know, 30 seconds later and say, look, do you not know he's eternal? That's the wrong food. <laughs> that's the wrong food for the time. So you have to pick the food which allows the person to move. It may be that you say, well, why don't you take up something? You know, why don't you take up an activity or watercolouring or something that you've always loved to do and you never had the time before? And if they can make that step, that's an excellent bit of advice. And then you might advise something else and advise something else. You are there to help them move, but don't push them. You're more like a, the analogy would be of a shepherd rather than somebody with a shotgun. <laughs> The shepherd just gently gets them to keep moving in the right direction. It's very interesting that Christ used that analogy. He didn't say go up on the mountaintop and preach and say drag them up the hill. He said be like a shepherd, get behind. And all you do is gently nudge somebody along when they have stopped or they've wandered too much to the left or too much to the right. But they have to make their own journey. So, yes. We'll make this the last question, if that's all right. And there's a lady back there. Hi. Um, I just wonder, when you're talking about helping people who are grieving or whatever, if, and you say that people talk, somebody who's grieving will talk and talk and talk about the person who's died or whatever. If somebody isn't talking about it, I mean, should you try and push them into talking about it or should you leave them? Like, if they just don't want to discuss it or they don't bring it up themselves. Yes. 
the primary thing that you have to offer somebody who's grieving is your non-grieving. That is the real thing that you have to offer. So that what you offer, you offer your presence, your happy or still or peaceful presence to the person. And it's just like if you see somebody looking extremely healthy, you say, what do you eat? You want to know what's making them so super healthy so that you can be healthy. When a grieving person sees you absolutely at peace with yourself, they will be drawn out to your peace. They will want it themselves. So you may not have to speak. It may not be appropriate to speak. It may be that you just let there be silence. But let it not be an awkward silence. Let it be a silence where you're just present with them. But there may come a time when you need to engage them in talk. And you can do that, but it's not a forcing. You just engage. So, as I gave the example of my friend who had to bury his daughter, well, when he came over, I said, do you remember that game where we won 37 nil or something like that? And he was drawn out by the question, by, if you want to call it, an attractive question, as far as he was concerned. And then he engaged in the conversation. So there is an art of sitting with those who grieve and who've gone very silent, of drawing them out. But you must let them have their silence as well. The main thing you offer them is company. You, you can visit somebody in hospital, and they can be very ill, and you could be sitting by the bed, and you're worrying whether they're going to die, then you're not company for them. You're not in their company. The real secret is just to be with them. Other than this nudging, you'll have to let them set the pace. I don't know if that helps. Okay. All right. We should leave it at that. Thank you very much indeed.